Today's scripture reading comes from Nehemiah chapter 8. All the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people have been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks, and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. So how many of you have ever heard about the one-year Bible reading plan? If you've never heard about it before, the goal is really, really simple. Read the Bible from cover to cover, Genesis to Revelation, over the span of one year, hence one-year Bible reading plan. Well, during my sophomore year in college, my good friend and I had this crazy, crazy idea of starting something called a Bible reading retreat. And our goal was very similar. Read the Bible from cover to cover, but this time not over the span of one year, but over the span of five days out loud. And so our game plan was to read the entire Old Testament in just four days and to read the New Testament in one day. It takes about 13 to 15 hours per day to get this done. And so during our winter break, uh, 12 of us crazy people gathered in my friend's basement for a retreat where we would just read from morning till evening. Uh, we had some friends that would come in just to uh, cook for us so we wouldn't have to spend any time meal prepping. We even had like fun games to help us focus. So anytime we saw the word field in the Old Testament, which appears quite a bit, we would all yell out field and any other, you know, keywords just to help us pay attention. Uh, I remember by the third day when fatigue started setting in, people were doing push-ups and jumping jacks just so that they could stay awake to read God's word. And you know what? By the end of the retreat on the fifth day, we actually did finish reading the entire Bible. By my junior year, uh, there were now 30, over 30 people that were a part of the Bible reading retreat. By my senior year, there were over 40 people participating in this retreat. 20 years later, if I am not mistaken, my alma mater is still doing this Bible retreat that we started uh, 20 years ago. 
all because of this hunger for God's word. Now, I look back at that time at my college self, and I think, man, I was a very overly zealous uh, college student. Uh, but truth be told, there's another part of me that looks back at that time, and there's a small part of me that it really, actually a large part of me that really is envious of the kind of craving that I had for God's word. And so my question to all of us today is this, how much of a hunger do you have for God's word? Charles Spurgeon, the, the great Baptist preacher once said, visit many good books, but live in the Bible. And so my question to all of us is this, is the Bible a place that you dwell in live in, or is the Bible a place that you visit once a year? My Herculean goal for us this morning or this afternoon, whenever you're watching it, my Herculean goal for us is to inspire us to have a greater hunger and desire to read and study God's Word. Um, so let me start by saying this. Uh, sometimes we don't know what we have until we don't have it anymore. That was certainly the case in Nehemiah's context. For 70 years, not for just one year like this pandemic, but for 70 years, the Jewish community had no church, no sermons, no community groups, no fellowship, no nothing. And the reason for that is because they were conquered by the Assyrians, Babylonians, and the Persians. And when they were conquered by them, the Babylonians exiled them to live in their land as slaves for 70 years. However, after those 70 years were over, the Jewish community experienced a second mosaic-like exodus, where they would not leave Egypt this time, but they would leave Babylon to go back to the promised land. But here's the thing, when they finally returned home after being away for 70 years, what they discovered is that the city that they once knew looked like a dystopian wasteland. Their temple was destroyed. Their city was destroyed. Their walls were destroyed. So what do they do? They get their HGTV game on and they rebuild their temple. They rebuild their city. They rebuild their walls. And after they rebuild everything, this is what we read in verse 1. All the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. So verse 1 says that all the people came together as one. So I want you to imagine this for a moment. 50,000 former exiles assembling together to, to congregate together and form one body in front of the city. You know what's really interesting? In the New Testament, the Greek word for church is ekklesia. You know what ekklesia means? It simply means assembly. And as I think back uh, over the past year, while exilic doors have never been closed, our physical doors have been. And so I mourn over the fact that we have not been able to assemble together as one. Uh, I can't tell you how many jokes I've heard from people uh, saying, you know, I don't mind being alone, but even for me, this is, this is a bit much. And the reason for that is because when God made us, when God made Adam, he made Adam perfect 
but he also made them incomplete. Adam and us, we were always meant to be in the context of community. This is also why he made Eve, because Eve completed Adam's incompleteness. Adam completed Eve's incompleteness. We were always meant to live in the context of community. And while these digital assemblies are great, uh, we are embodied creatures. We're not digital cyborgs. So this is part of the reason why we, theologically speaking and existentially speaking, we all sort of feel incomplete right now. We feel this gaping hole in our hearts. And the reason for that is because we have not been able to assemble together for basically anything over the past year. Um, so we've lost our sense of space and place. But after 70 years, the Jewish community finally had their sense of space and place restored. And they gathered together, and this is what we read in 1b. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. Now, in our Bibles, uh, Ezra and Nehemiah are two separate books. But in the Hebrew Bible, Ezra and Nehemiah are actually one book. And the reason for that is because their stories very much overlap. And what we find here is that the people ask Ezra to bring the book of the law of Moses out and to read it. Now, the book of the law of Moses is simply the Torah or the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Keep in mind, there is no New Testament yet. This is way prior, this is 400 years prior to Jesus being born. And so this was their Bible. And so they ask Ezra to bring it out and to read it. And this is what we read in verse three. He, that is Ezra, read it out loud, read it aloud from daybreak till noon. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. So Ezra reads the Bible from daybreak, which is probably around 6 a.m., all the way to noon, so for about six hours. Now, that, that might sound crazy to us, but let me give us two reasons why he did that. The first is this, uh, and for those of you who are history buffs, you might really appreciate this. But when the Jewish community was exiled to Babylon, they lost something. And what they lost was their Hebrew language. For those of you who come from immigrant backgrounds, you might very much relate to this, where you've you sort of lost a language that your mother and father can speak because you now live in America and you've learned English. Well, similarly, when the Jewish captives were exiled to Babylon, they lost their Hebrew and they assimilated into Babylonian culture and learned the lingua franca of the day, which was Aramaic. This is the reason why Jesus eventually spoke in Aramaic. This is the reason why portions of Daniel, uh, who was also exiled, this is why portions of Daniel are also written in Aramaic. And so they fully assimilated into Babylonian life. However, when they returned back home, and now Ezra is reading the, the Torah aloud in Hebrew, what they needed was someone for someone to translate the Hebrew into Aramaic. And as you all know, whenever something is translated, it takes twice as long. So that's why, that's why Ezra was reading for so long. It was being translated. But here's the second reason why Ezra was reading for so long. The second reason was because the people had a craving for God's word. They wanted to hear more and more of God's word. And so what we read in verse 7 is this, the Levites instructed the people in the law 
while the people were standing there. And so what was basically happening is this. Ezra is reading the word of God aloud, and the Levites are swarming in and out of the crowds, basically forming Q&A breakout sessions, community groups, so that the people could be instructed about what Ezra was reading. So this is, this is the reason why we have Q&As after our Sunday services and our viewing parties. This is the reason why we have community groups where we're, we're studying the uh, book of Acts. It's because we want to uh, form learning communities where we can ask questions in case there's any ambiguities about what we're reading. The point is this, the people of God had a hunger for God's word. They could not get enough of it. And so my question to you again is, how much do you hunger for God's word? How much value do you place on God's word? How much worth do you give to God's word? The, uh, the famous atheist and biologist Richard Dawkins once, says that, once said this, to be fair, much of the Bible is not systematically evil, but just plain weird, as you would expect of a chaotically cobbled together anthology of disjointed documents, composed, revised, translated, distorted, and improved by hundreds of anonymous authors, editors, and copyists unknown to us and mostly unknown to each other, spanning nine centuries. So why do you believe the Bible is the Word of God? If someone were to ask you that question, how would you respond? If you come to Exilic long enough, you'll hear all sorts of historical and scholarly reasons for why we think the Bible is the Word of God. But for our purposes today, let me just give one approach to help us discern whether the Bible is the Word of God or not. And hopefully this will help uh, those of you in our community that are kind of straddling the fence and trying to figure this out and you're, you're on this spiritual journey. So let me say this. It's going to sound a little bit provocative, uh, but hear me out as I say this. And here it is. You don't have to believe everything in the Bible to be a Christian. You don't have to believe in everything. So if you're kind of struggling with how, you know, how did Noah get all those animals into the ark? Hey, that's totally fine. If you're wondering how did Jonah live in the belly of a fish as the fish Ubered him from Tarshish to Nineveh in three days, like how, how does that work? If you don't believe in it, that's fine. Uh, that talking snake in Genesis 3, what's up with that? Hey, that's totally fine. But my recommendation is this, rather than starting at the edges, try starting at the center. And you know what? This, who is at the center of the Bible? It's Jesus. So was Jesus a real historical figure or not? Did he really die for our sins or did he die for his own sins because he was an insurrectionist and a, you know, a hustler who you know, persuaded people to believe in him as God? Did Jesus really die and rise again? Or were the 11 disciples like Ocean's 11 and impersonating their best you know, version of stealing something from a protected vault, which was a tomb, and not leaving a single trace whatsoever? Who is Jesus to you? Because if you don't think that Jesus is God, we don't have to quibble with all the other questions on the edges. But if you believe that Jesus is God, then if he's God, he can do whatever he wants. The creator of the laws of nature can suspend the laws of nature if he wants. So if he wants to turn 
water into wine, he can do it. If he wants to split the Red Sea, he can do it. If he wants to walk on water, he can do whatever he wants because he's God. And once you realize that Jesus is God, then everything else starts to make more and more sense. You don't have to believe everything in the Bible to be a Christian. But the longer you're a Christian, you start to believe everything else in the Bible as well. This is what Dr. Billy Graham once said. Down through the years, the Bible has been ridiculed, burned, refuted, destroyed, but it lives on. It is the anvil that has worn out many hammers. Most books are born, live a few short years, then go the way of all the earth. They're forgotten, but not the Bible. The Bible is preserved. It lives on. This is part of the reason why we say after our scripture reading, uh, the words of the prophet Isaiah, when he says that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever and ever. In Hebrews 4.12, it says that the word of God is alive and it is active. So the Bible has God's breath in it. It's actually even breathed out by God. So the Bible isn't just a book, it's alive. And therefore, it doesn't just say things, it actually does things. It convicts, it comforts, it encourages, it brings to life. And so the Bible is no ordinary book uh, at all, which is why in verse, verses four and five, it says this, Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Ezra opened the book and all the people could see him because he was standing above them as he opened it. The people all stood up. So Ezra stands up on stage on this high platform and it's not because Ezra is important, it's really because the word of God is important. And so this is, this is what it means to have scripture above us, not below us. Now, as modern people, that irritates us a lot because we don't like anything being above us. We don't like anything having authority over us. But one of the problems with this kind of mindset is this. I want you to picture and imagine a society where everyone dresses up and impersonates a police officer. So everyone in this society is you know, dressed up in this police, police uniform. What do you think would happen to that society? That society would unravel and the reason for that is because its authority, uh, structure of authority has also unraveled. Now I want you to imagine a society where people don't dress up and impersonate police officers, but people dress up and impersonate God. Now what do you think would happen to that society? I would say that the same thing would happen. Because everyone has become a law in and of themselves, the authority structures are undermined, and that society and people's lives will eventually collapse. And so this is why it's so important for us not to be above Scripture, but Scripture to be above us. For Scripture not to align to our lives, but for our lives to align towards Scripture. Now, what does that look like? Well, my daughter uh, is in school, and she now has new authority figures in her life, like, like her teachers. And so she's learning a lot about uh, submitting to authority and obedience. And one of the things that they say at their school, which I really, really love, is this. Obedience, this is what obedience is. Uh, obeying right away, all the way, and with a happy heart. Not obeying slowly, but obeying right away. 
Not obeying halfway, but obeying all the way. Not obeying with a grumpy heart, but obeying with a happy heart. You know what obedience is? Obedience is obeying right away, all the way, and with a happy heart. My question to you is, are you doing that right now when it comes to your relationship with God? Are, are there things that you're putting off that you should be obeying right away? Are there things where you've only gone halfway when you should be going all the way? Are there things that you're doing in your life right now that you're doing with a grumbling heart? Or are you doing it with a happy heart? This is what it means to have Scripture above us rather than Scripture below us. And these returning exiles, they they really want to obey right away, all the way, and with a happy heart. And we know that because in verse 9b it says this, For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. So I want you to imagine with me for a moment, 50,000 former exiles gathered together and they begin to weep. And the reason for that is because for the first time in their lives, they see this incongruity with their lives and the Word of God. Their lives are misaligned with what the Word of God says. And so they begin to weep. But listen to what Nehemiah says in verse 9. Then Nehemiah said to them all, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Now here's the question. Why does Nehemiah say, say not to weep? when they're being convicted of their sin. And the reason why he says this is because there are seasons where we do need to weep and lament, and there are seasons where we need to rejoice. And Nehemiah is saying, this season right now, it's a time of rejoicing. These exiles have just returned from 70 years of captivity. They finally rebuilt their temple, rebuilt the city, rebuilt the walls. This was a time to celebrate what the Lord had done for their, uh, in, done in their lives. And so what that means is that the goal of the Bible is not just to hate our sin, but the goal of the Bible is also, most importantly, to love our Savior. And the question is, why? Well, a few years ago, there was a show on CBS called Living Biblically, and it was about a New Yorker named Chip Curry who tragically lost his closest friend. And because he, he lost his best friend, he's facing this existential crisis. And you know he just finds out his wife is pregnant and, and he, he wants to be a better man. And so he takes a look at his coworkers at work who are just obsessed at work and he finds that very unattractive and unappealing. He takes a look at his other group of friends that just party all the time and he doesn't really find that satisfactory as well. So he's trying to figure out how do I become a a better man now that I'm going to, you know, I'm having this, you know, crisis. And so he goes to a bookstore and he picks out all these self-help books. And as he's checking out, uh, a Bible happens to be in his basket. And so he tells the cashier, oh, I didn't, I didn't mean to put the, the Bible in here. But then all of a sudden he, he thinks maybe providentially I'm supposed to buy it and read it. And so he does. And Chip makes this um, resolution to live according to the Bible, every word of it, down to the T. And so he starts reading the Old Testament and he decides not to eat pork or bacon anymore. Uh, all of his clothes can't be made of mixed fabric. It has to be made out of the same fabric. He stops swearing. 
Um, there's even this humorous scene where he's at a restaurant and he sees his friend there with another person that's not his wife and he's clearly cheating on his wife and the Old Testament says to stone the adulterer. So he, he's like faced with this dilemma. So he picks up like this, this tiny pebble from this flower pot and then he like <laughs> tosses it at his friend and then runs away. So he's, he's, he's trying to live biblically uh, down to the letter T, but he quickly, quickly realizes that it is a lot easier said than done. And one of the problems with Chip's approach to understanding the Bible is that he thought that the point of the Bible was for us to live a morally perfect life. And the confusion that Chip had was that that's actually religion. The point of Christianity is actually that you can't live a perfectly moral life. One of the things that you will discover as you read the Bible is that the Bible is actually reading you. I told you the Bible is alive. And when you read the Bible, it is a mirror that reflects what your life looks like. And oftentimes that reflection is not very pretty. And this is why Jesus had to come. When Jesus came, he lived the moral, morally perfect life that we were supposed to. He lived a truly biblical life. But the crazy part is he takes that moral resume and he deposits that into our account so that it's as if we live the life of Jesus, which is crazy. But he not only lived that life for us, but he takes the punishment for all of our sins uh, as well on the cross uh, to forgive us. And so when you think about what the Bible is, more than a list of commands of what to do and what not to do, the Bible at the end of the day is God's love letter to us, telling us how much he loves us. In fact, he loves us so much that he wanted to die for us so that we can be with him. Now, uh, you might still be thinking, I know, I know all of this, but you know what? The Bible's still, to me, kind of boring. And I want you to know I totally get it. But I also want you to know that just because something is boring, it doesn't mean that it's unimportant. Flossing is boring, but that doesn't mean that flossing is unimportant. Still, the question remains, how do we make the Bible a little bit more exciting to us so uh, that we don't feel like it's a, um, a dreadful thing to read? So let me just share two things that I, as we wrap up that might be helpful. Uh, there was once a woman who uh, went to her local bookstore and bought a book. And as she was reading the book, she read the first few pages, but she couldn't even get past the first chapter because of how dull and boring it was. But by chance, the woman happened to meet the author of the book. And as she, get, as she began to get to know the author of the book better and better, uh, there was a romantic interest that grew. And as her relationship with one another grew more and more personal, she all of a sudden had a fresh new look on the book that he wrote. What, what, what did he mean when he said this? Was his character a reflection of what he is really like? And all of a sudden she had fresh eyes on this book that she once found so boring. And I would say similarly, as you grow more curious about God and your interest in God grows, the more your curiosity and interest about his word will also grow. And you know what? The more you love the word, the more you will love God as well. And around and around we go. And that's sort of how it works. Let me also just say this. 
Uh, I want you to think for a moment about how old you are. All right. So have, have that number mentally seared in your mind. How old are you? So I'm, I'm like 27. So you might be 28. So think about how old you are. Now, do you remember every single meal you've ever had in your entire life? Probably not. And yet, here you are, alive, healthy, sustained, all because of those forgotten meals that you've had throughout the course of your life. And similarly, I would say, do you remember every sermon you've ever heard? You remember every community group discussion, every prayer you've uttered? Probably not. And yet, here you are. Just as those, uh, those meals that you've eaten invisibly nourished you, similarly, all of these sermons, uh, the, the reading of you know, the word, your devotions, your prayer life, those things invisibly nourish and sustain you as well. So don't stop doing it. Because can you imagine a life where you stop eating food? You would not be alive and healthy. And similarly, if you stop eating and consuming the word of God, you will not be healthy and alive either. So let me close with the words of Spurgeon again, who once said, visit many good books, but live in the Bible. Pray with me.